if you are a fan of the PBS show Downton Abbey, of course you recognize that iconic music. That is the beginning of the series, season one, episode one, in which Lord Grantham, the owner, having inherited Downton Abbey from his father, the owner of the estate, is about to learn that the only qualified male heirs to the estate, no kidding, drowned when the Titanic sank. This, of course, creates an estate planning problem of epic proportions for Lord Grantham and his family, and also creates great content for today's episode when we talk about the way British common law treated the conveyance of estates, what we have inherited from them, and what we do much better, but the concepts and the terminology that we are stuck with. We will learn from history. We will learn from the laws of money so that we can leverage it to our advantage. Let's get started. Welcome, Boomexers. Let's throw out the old playbook. It's time to tear down the traditional way of looking at your life and money. And leverage the laws of money to our advantage. That's right. There are laws of money. And those who learn and leverage the laws of money win. And sometimes win big. Stay tuned as asset protection attorney Daryl Tuttle, educator and leader of the Boomex Nation, shows us how. Beginners, investors, entrepreneurs, fellow attorneys, are you ready? Are you ready? Let's arm this ball. Now, here's the Boomex Show. The Laws of Money. Welcome back to the Boom X Show. I have just uploaded to the companion course a short video that defines the word estate as it appears in the code. And trust me, estate, that term, estate planning, is not what you think it is. In that video, I also just walk around with my iPhone at a spot on the Caribbean that's not very far from the studio here. I talk a bit about the history of this area which actually I'm focused on back on the theme of pirates that operated in this area. I talk a little bit in that video about that, but remember it all comes down to like the influence of Great Britain in common law, but even Great Britain in the United States. We've inherited the legal system from Great Britain and United Kingdom, really, and... Lawyers just refer to it as common law or British common law. The first trust, if you take the nest egg course as a family member of the Boomex Academy, you'll learn the history of trust law that dates back to the black. It's just fascinating to me because we're experiencing a, a pandemic now, and it's so ironic that people are, in some cases, making mistakes that is leading to their wealth being eroded and the single best way to protect it is an irrevocable trust it's really not that different than the trust that was created during the black plague which i explained in the companion course i misspoke in the nest egg course 
which is available. You'll be automatically enrolled if you join as a family leader. If you want to test drive the concept, boomxacademy.com is the URL for you to go to the website and you can join as a free member in the companion course. There's additional content. And then I, you know, can see there's some tangents that I go on, but that's my prerogative. And that first video, I'm talking about the um, idea, like not the idea of an estate as it's used in nomenclature today, but the actual legal definition of the word estate. It only appears the word estate three times in the law, and it's very important for a person who wants to distinguish between asset protection and basic run-of-the-mill retirement planning, which I believe is the difference between success and failure. If you really want to um, begin with the foundation, it's understanding what estate that term means. It happens to come from archaic French, brought over to Great Britain during the uh, invasion of Normandy, 1066. That's its origins, as is probate. Probate's origin is from William the Conqueror in 1066. And we still have the archaic word achievement came from archaic French in Normandy when William the Conqueror came across and invaded and conquered England. That word achievement refers to the practice of in the event that there is not a qualified male heir back in those days, then the estate which the crown had distributed to the Lord if there is no qualified male there, it will sheet back to the crown. It will revert back to the crown. The crown has a remainder interest. It's a conveyance of the estate to the Lord that had shown fealty to William the Conqueror, King William, but it was contingent. There were strings attached. If there was no qualified male heir to run the estate, to raise taxes, to raise an army, to serve the crown, then it would uh, revert back to the crown for its own use to be distributed again. And that's how the Lords, one of the ways that the Lords lost their estate. Downton Abbey, the show, fast forward in 1066, Downton Abbey is set in when the Titanic sang in what, the early 1900s. So even though centuries had passed, Downton Abbey is an estate that had been with that family for centuries. Maybe it had been distributed by William or redistributed. And his problem is if he does not have a qualified male heir, it will sheet back to the crown and the family will lose the estate. If you think that this is all hypothetical, in my state, your state too, there is not a state in all 50 states in which there is not a concept of sheetment. If there is no heir, the state's department of unclaimed property will take possession of the asset my friends and that statute in my state is no kidding called a sheetment quote unquote that's what the statute's called and it is verbatim from a concept of a logial title originating before but inculcated into british common law and therefore american it's actually astounding talk about holding on to a really bad idea. <laughs> That's what the law does is we look back into time for a legal principle so that we, we can have consistency. And so the terminology and the history and the construct of British common law is still with us today and it is still relevant. Now, of course, we don't have time 
to go into all the terminology, but if you enroll in the companion course, that's the first step. As a member of family leaders, of course, then you have, if you take the asset protection roadmap, of course, then you get a glossary of the 50 most common estate planning terms and, and much more. So that's a great way to learn. Let's, on that note, let's just take a moment and really focus on the benefits of the academy. If you are in or near retirement, you may have concerns that one of the many threats to wealth in America today, in particular, high unreimbursed medical costs, unnecessary taxation, or even family mismanagement, could threaten your retirement nest egg. The good news is that the law does have solutions. Federal law and centuries-old trust law offers many safe harbors and, when implemented correctly, can protect your savings against Medicaid liens, state and federal tax agencies, and even private creditors. But why do so many retires then suffer asset erosion or even complete depletion, having failed to meet the law's requirements? The simple but sad truth is that most are unaware of these asset protection laws or believe that only the super wealthy can pay less in taxes or think that they must hire an expensive attorney, some who charge tens of thousands of dollars to put it all together. Unfortunately, we live in a world now where middle class Americans simply do not have enough wealth to lose any of it. It's more important than ever for most to have an asset protection trust and plan, even if they are not super wealthy. Now, for the first time, families have help. Families can protect their assets if they learn a few basic concepts, have the correct legal documents, and implement these asset protection plans correctly. To do this, begin by enrolling in the BoomX Academy. The BoomX Academy is at, you guessed it, BoomXAcademy.com. That's BoomXAcademy.com. BoomX Academy offers free and tuition-based courses on topics related to retirement, estate, and asset protection planning. Sign up today for the Family Leaders membership level, and you will also join an online community of other learners. You may attend weekly live office hours with me, Daryl Tuttle, host of the BoomX Show and an in-the-trenches asset protection attorney. Best of all, you'll have access to the BoomX drafting app so that you can easily draft all of the legal documents you need without hiring an expensive lawyer. To repeat, you will walk away with a full set of properly drafted legal documents that you understand. You can join today as a free member and you will be enrolled in the BoomX Show companion course automatically. You can also test drive the $40 per month family leaders level at the astounding rate of just $1 for the first 30 days. During this first month, you will be able to draft a limited power of attorney to preserve the right to transfer your nest egg to an irrevocable trust, a proven strategy I have helped clients implement countless times. This is also an $1,800 value. You will be enrolled at no further cost into the nest egg course, which will introduce you to the concepts of asset protection and how to implement this legal document and begin your asset protection plan. To learn more, go to boomxacademy.com. That's boomxacademy.com.
In last week's episode, Susan, who attended office hours at the Boomex Academy, indicated she had a, a family, four, four daughters, and she was in the process of using the drafting app in the application to create a asset protection plan in which she was preserving the right to transfer that a nest egg into an irrevocable trust, which I characterize like the, the mind map should be, or the theater of the mind rather should be like a, a family bank. Now, not a bank like Bank of America uses the term. Bank of America just holds your money, charges you fees, and there is, um, and will throw you under the bus under certain conditions without thinking twice about it. For example, think about privacy. Privacy is under assault in America today. It's primarily um, under assault, not by the government, rather, but by uh, private companies. And if you've ever really looked at terms and agreement services, uh, agreements, when you sign up for a social media account, of course, what happens is to use the social media platform. Facebook is a great example you are essentially waiving all right to <laughs> any kind of privacy that you would normally expect. And financial institutions have the same sort of um, morals. And now everybody pays lip service to privacy, but the truth is in the event that you have a family bank account and oh, you can go to Bank of America, set up Susan. In this example, Susan is trying to set up a pot of money, like, like a responsible family financial plan to build family wealth. That's her goal. That should be everybody's goal. And she could, she cannot go to Bank of America and set up an account with her husband and her four daughters as joint tenants with right of survivorship and expect any kind of a asset protection. For example, if the um, Internal Revenue Service decided to audit the family, Susan, despite this is a hypothetical, this is not going on with Susan at all, but if the Internal Revenue Service issued a subpoena for the bank records, Bank of America would spit those up in, in a heartbeat. And so while a bank customer expects privacy, it, it's limit, extremely limited, in my view, limited. Now, if on the other hand, let me use a slightly different example to illustrate the point, which I think will make more sense. Um, if you buy a car and register the car in your name and you are later driving it home from the car lot, you run through a red light and the red light intersection has a traffic camera, they will issue an infraction. Now, it is not required... Infractions can be issued, not crimes, but infraction traffic tickets, which are civil penalties, can be issued by a government authority without a police officer present <clears throat> under some city statutes. In other words, a camera. And the problem is identifying the driver because you cannot issue a citation against a car, an automobile. It has to be against a human being. So the statutes work this way. If the ticket goes to the registered um, driver, owner, driver of the registered owner, rather, of the car, and it's up to the driver to rebut the presumption when they receive the ticket in the mail that the driver was a registered owner, that's fine, except that we could create a limited liability company that purchases the automobile. And in that case, so ABC privacy is important, comma LLC, 
Let's just say that's the name of the company, and it purchases the vehicle, and driver of the company runs through a red light. Well, there, there's not going to be an ability to enforce a traffic ticket because the privacy of the driver has been protected by owning the vehicle rather than the driver. Now, remember, business um, entities are for business assets and trusts are for personal assets. A trust could even own a vehicle. And so you can't send a traffic infraction to a family trust. It's unenforceable because you protected the privacy of the driver. Now, I, I am not suggesting that uh, you can use a trust and then go violate, run, run through red lights. Of, of course not. But it does illustrate the point that the government's um, job is to, in some cases, enforce spurious type. Run, running a, a red light, to me, you, like would you run a red light at 2 o'clock in the morning if there was absolutely nobody present? Some people would say yes. Some people would say no. That's not the point. The point is privacy is, is in my view, important. Now, back to the example, though, of an account, if we made a complete transfer of assets in tax year one and established a non-grantor trust, the taxpayer no longer owns those assets. Rather, the trust owns the assets. And the trust actually um, is considered, obtains a, tax, a taxpayer ID number registered with the Internal Revenue Service and files a 1041 to report any kind of a gain or loss inside of the trust. And the owner, the prior owner of the assets has essentially been divested from ownership, although there could be some benefit to the um, trust or, more importantly, the trustor's family. Now, in the event in, in tax year two or tax year three, absent a claim of fraudulent transfer if the taxpayer uh, was audited by the Internal Revenue Service, then the a subpoena against the trust would be <clears throat> improper. And that's not to say that the Internal Revenue Service wouldn't try, but a motion in court should be able to compel, restrain the bank from issuing the bank records because it's a different entity. Now, that is not the case if they can prove fraud, but we're not talking about fraud here. Like none of the work I do involves any kind of tax evasion at, at all. In fact, we are transparent as the law describes. Now, so what Susan's trying to do is not set up a family bank account at Bank of America, which really has no asset protection value whatsoever, but to create a true asset protection trust that not only preserves the privacy of the family, but also creates a pot of money um, that the family can draw upon for whatever purpose that they want. And, and that also gets to privacy. So in the event that you essentially, if your family's values are like, we're all in this together. And if mom becomes ill and frail late in her life, we're going to, we're going to, we're not going to just let her die penniless on the streets. We're going to take care of her. We're going to take care of our mom. That's our family values. Now, if the family has been provided a pot of money ahead of time for whatever, like all family members benefit from this, then th that is a private transaction. And those funds are available to co-pay with Medicare, to co-pay with Medicaid. And it also reduces estate tax liability if there is one because you have lowered the taxable estate. Makes perfect sense. That's what Susan's goal is. Now, in, in the last episode, 
of the Boom X Show Laws of Money podcast, she had asked in office hours, I'm confused about professional trustees versus using my daughter because I had strongly advocated do not think everybody's instinct is, oh, I'll just let my daughter be the trustee. That creates a lot of problems. She's an interested party. She's also a lifetime beneficiary. And the question that Susan had asked when setting up this family bank, this bulletproof asset protection family bank, an irrevocable non-grantor trust, was I'm confused about the terminology. So the trustee is a person that manages it. The lifetime beneficiary is the person that's entitled to distributions of income or principal, depending on how it's set up during the lifetime of the trust maker. And then when the trust maker dies or whatever termination event you choose could be a termination of event 150 years out for all I care. But there is a termination event. All trusts have to be able to terminate at some point or it's not a valid trust. And so whatever that termination event is, then the remainder beneficiaries are those who are entitled to distributions out of the trust. So in this case, the four daughters equally. Now, that does not mean that you cannot create a separate trust for each kid if the you want this trust to, the idea of asset protection to protect not only your the, that first generation but the grandkids' generation as well, then you, you create a cascading or dynasty trust. And so when Sharon, or Susan rather, is setting this all up, she, in office hours, we were able, I was able to explain to her what the different parties were. Now, what's what I think is cool is we started this out with Downton Abbey. My job is a little boring. Like, talking about trust law can be a, a little bit dry. And so here we are. We have a PBS show that's basically on, on that point. Historically, Lord Grantham wakes up on the morning that the Titanic sinks, and his two, two heirs to the estate had perished. So he's, wow, my plan is falling apart here because... I am tied to um, the entail. Let me explain that. If you go back to 1066, when William the Conqueror prevailed at the Battle of Hastings against his herald, Edward the Confessor, I- anyway, 1066, won, won the Battle of um, Hastings. He brought with him a very strange, from the English perspective, ideas about property. And essentially... William was able to conquer all of England and then parceled out the prior estates like he's conquered England and so he's taken the land. And then he creates, he actually created the first parcel system and then parceled out estates to all his buddies that helped him win the Lord. So that became the nobility, the new nobility of England. And it's really, I bet you if he really realized what he was doing, he might have done it differently, but he didn't give complete title to the lords. He could have. That's the system that they had used. Like, here, this is your land. You can do with as you please. But he did not do that. He said, this is my land, and I have a divine right to it, and my title is ultimate. And so now what he gave to each lord was not all of all complete title forever. It was contingent, and there were strings attached. And that sprung into existence, this idea of property interest. Now, in America, we, we talk about interest all the time. I have an interest in that. I, like, we're used to the idea of interest. But back then, they were not. And, and here, I think you think, if what William said was, if you die, Lord, here's your estate, you're good to go. The only thing I expect is you need to pay me taxes and you need to be able to provide troops in the event that I need to call upon them to defend your estate and, or to defend my crown. 
So that right there, the there's a string attached, isn't there? It's not an estate outright. It's an estate if you do these two things. The third string attached was when you pass away, it's okay if you keep it in your family, provided you have a family. And I define family as a qualified male heir, not a female heir, a male heir. If you do not have a qualified male heir, then it's going to sheet back to the crown. I get it back. Now, think about that. That So that is a, it's not a future, it's called a future interest. In law school, the first year of law school, property professors across the nation torture young law students with this the dif- difference between a present interest and a future interest is may or may not vest on a contingent event in the future. And for example, the crown has a future interest. If Lord Buckingham is granted an estate, the crown, the future interest that the crown has retained is the right of reversion. In other words, if there's no qualified heir, the estate reverts back to the crown. But if there is a qualified heir, the crown's interest, the future interest, does not vest. Rather, it vests in the next heir. And that repeats itself over and over again, right? Now, that difference between present and future interest became a source of contention with the lords. If you think about uh, Magna Carta, it's all about what are our interests? What are our property interests? What rights do we have? Because we are unclear. And what developed was complicated systems. The very first trust developed because of this problem. But then these things called uh, fee simple. And back then, land was conveyed by a written instrument according to strict rules, a conveyance. And they had future interests that had to be described in the conveyance. And there, there were entails, that's what they called them, that were complicated. And the problem that Lord Grantham at Downton Abbey has is that his father had hired a lawyer and wanted to make sure that the estate that he had inherited from his father and so far was um, wrapped up and protected so that it would stay in the family and go down this medieval line of inheritance to to male heirs. Now, the problem that Lord Grantham had was in the early 1900s, the states were, the Middle Ages are over, right? So it's not like Lord Grantham's riding around in a, a suit of armor and protecting the serfs from marauders. Those days are over. And as the economy of the world changes, Lord Grantham's in trouble. So he ended up marrying... The storyline in Downton Abbey is he marries a rich American woman who comes over, and she just infuses the estate with a lot of money, which is like her dowry. But it becomes part of the estate, and she's actually divested of control over that money. Lord Grantham now has the money, and he's able to run the estate with it. So she, the marriage with the American woman saved the estate. Now, if, if you think that's horrible. They're a close couple, actually. I mean, they're husband and wife. They love each other, and they have a, a close family. Now, the second thing that went wrong with Lord Grantham, poor guy, is he had only daughters, no sons. So already we have a problem because his, the entail that provided and required the estate to pass to a qualified male heir 
did not work because we only had daughters. And in, in a sense, had the oldest daughter been, or any of the kids been a male, see, then the future interest would have vested, wouldn't it? Because I have a son and it, the inheritance passes down to my descendants contingent upon a male heir. That didn't happen. And so when Susan's asking this question about how do my four daughters fit in, of course, we're not talking about their gender anymore. Those days are over. But we are talking about what are their interests in the future. One daughter might be entitled to lifetime distributions. The other three might be excluded. And then when the trust terminates, the future interest is distribution to all of them equally. Now, in Lord Grantham's case, he thought he had it set because he, strangely enough, the aristocracy back in those days, they did all kinds of weird things. But they apparently hooked, for lack of a better word, hooked Mary up, his daughter, with his brother's son, which would be Mary's cousin. So she's engaged to her cousin for an obvious reason. And that obvious reason is at the end of Lord Grantham's life, the cousin will inherit title to the estate, but at least his daughter is married, and, and then they can continue owning the estate down the family line. So Lord Grantham has met his goal, which is his descendants inherit rather than another family or having it revert back to the crown, which it would have done had they had no heirs. When the Titanic sinks, of course, they're out of luck because now Mary's not engaged anymore and his brother's son, his brother and his son die in the Titanic and he doesn't even know who the new heir is. So they have to do some research and figure out, okay, it has to be a male heir from the family. And so now we're going over to the Lord Grantham's father's uncles or whatever, and they find the next in line who is a man named Matthew. It's so funny because Matthew is in Manchester. I don't know where they are, but Manchester, that's like Tacoma, Washington. Tacoma, Washington is like grit city compared to Seattle. There's this snobbish attitude towards, and there's always, no matter where you are in America, you probably... There's probably a city that has a, a reputation that's not quite as good as the fancy city in your state. Just imagine. And then on top of it, they're trying to figure out who this guy is that's going to be the new Earl of Grantham. And it uh, turns out he's a lawyer, <laughs> a barrister, a counselor. The guy. Uh, and they actually say something. Well, at least he's not a physician. Apparently doctors had a bad reputation back then. But So now Lord Grantham, because of this very complicated conveyance that dates back to 1066 and that whole weird future interest is stuck with this barrister that comes and it's hysterical because Matthew, the barrister from Manchester, he doesn't want to be inherit the estate either. <laughs> He's not happy about the situation because he wants to practice law. And it's a really great show. You got to watch Downton Abbey, not only because of how many shows are there about estate planning, really, none, trust me. But that aside, of course, there's, um, it's just historically accurate. They spend a lot of time on the details, and there's all this intrigue between the servants who are constantly on the first level of the home and then the family that's on the top level and, and everything. You, you really need to see it. But they spend the next two seasons trying to figure out how they're going to get around this entail, and they're trying, and early in the um, show, they hire a, a fancy lawyer to try to smash the intel 
to get around it. And the advocate, the number one advocate for smashing the intel is the Countess Dowager, who is the widow of Lord Grantham's father, who's the one that created it. And there's hysterical back and forth and counter Dowager, Countess Dowager is constantly, got to smash it and she's scheming. And Lord Grantham's mom, <laughs> this is what dad set up. You can't just change the rules because you don't like the result. And of course, she's ornery and won't take that no for an answer. She's played by Maggie Smith, who is who she is. She played Professor McGonagall in the Harry Potter series, and she's a wonderful actress. But that problem has now been solved with trust. If you think about, I don't know why property professors even include requiring law students to learn future interest in entails that existed as late as maybe in the 1900s. And I suppose in England, maybe they still use them, but I've never seen one in 26 years of practice because even though estates can be quite large, we use trusts and trusts have so much more flexibility than a entail. So rather than the conveyance that really encumbers the property, so it cannot be transferred under certain conditions, rather transfer the property into a trust and the trust now owns it and the trust can transfer it out under certain conditions and even uh, court approval if it gets to that point. However, at least it can be transferred. Inside of the trust, it's up to you to create the rules. And so you can say, look, if I was counsel for Lord Grantham's father and had the tool of a trust, I would never use an intel. With few, yeah, I understand what the goal was, but you could say something like, the objective of the trust is to ensure that the descendants, my descendants, always own this property at the exclusion of the rest of the world. And so therefore, blah. Now, in the event that there is no male sons, then I'm going to take a, a page from the playbook of Queen Elizabeth. It's not like the British family didn't, I mean, Queen Elizabeth I reigned for how long? Queen Victoria was the queen right before the, the monarch, right before the Titanic sank. It was now, you know, Edward, but is that his name? And so it's not like you couldn't ha have laid out in more detail with more flexibility what your goal was and building contingencies. You could have done that. So I don't know why the British were so into the intel, which ended up encumbering and locking up property, and it just didn't work. However, we have to borrow from that terminology. Um, later in office hours, Susan asked, and I'm on, she goes, I'm unclear about remainder. So I see remainder beneficiaries and residuary beneficiaries. And I spent a lot of time explaining to her, well, think about it. It's a trust. Now, the modern term it, it, for a beneficiary, so there's beneficiaries that are entitled to distribution from the family bank during lifetime while the trust is in existence. When the trust terminates, then whatever's left over, that's called the residue, distributes out to the remainder beneficiaries. That idea of remainder comes from remainder men. And remainder men is directly linked to William the Conqueror's idea of future interest. And it's, a it's exactly that, a future interest. When the intel contingent event occurs or terminates, the remainder men, because remember, it's always just males, that's the term, remainder men, uh, then title vest in the remainder men who, who are last 
in the chain of contingent events, basically. We don't really use remainder men anymore. We could say remainder beneficiaries, or the modern term is residuary. Like whatever's left over in this pot of money goes to these designated people. It's much more flexible. And if you think about it, lifetime and then residuary or remainder, whatever's left over, they get the leftovers. And then the other term is remote contingent beneficiaries. And as I indicated, that's those folks who are next in the intestate secession if all the designated beneficiaries die. So we can say to my son, to my, uh, in Susan's case, it's a, she has four daughters. I can't remember the, all of their names, but Amy. So Amy for stirpes, meaning if she passes away, then to her descendants. If there are no descendants, then it goes to one of the other, one of Susan's other children equally. So building that all in just takes, you can say in one term, a lot per stirpes has a very specific meaning in two words would describe the remote contingent beneficiaries if the named kid is predeceased. You can also not even use per stirpes and say, in the event that Amy dies, I want her share to go to charity. See, now it's fun, but you can tell that the history and the terminology dates back to the origins of British common law, which is the origins of American jurisprudence, which is exciting. And I get to wrap up, use both my um, interest in history and law all in one fell swoop. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boom X Show Laws of Money podcast, where asset protection attorney Daryl Tuttle breaks down the complicated rules of estate, retirement, and even long-term care planning. You can listen to past episodes of the Boom X Show by going to boomxshow.com or subscribing right from your smartphone's podcast player. To take a deeper dive, join as a free member in the BoomX Academy, and you'll be automatically enrolled in the show's companion courses where you can find enhanced content and many of the show's important episodes. Enroll now by visiting BoomXAcademy.com. That's BoomXAcademy.com.